What does literature sound like? What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast, stories about how literature sounds. My name is Hannah McGregor, and each month I'll be bringing you different stories of Canadian literary history and our contemporary responses to it, created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada. What is your favorite way to hear a story? How does a written work change when it's read aloud, interrupted, or framed by moments of laughter and applause? At the Spoken Web Podcast, we are always considering what transformations happen in the conversions between printed words, live events, and our unarchiving of recorded stories. These questions frame today's episode, which will be a special treat for Canadian literature fans of prose and the short story. We present you with a full audio edition of a 1984 recording of Mavis Gallant reading her short story, Greep and Poche, at Simon Fraser University. This story was originally published in the New Yorker magazine in 1982. Our episode producers, Kate Moffat, Candace Sharon, and Michelle Levy, are researchers of book history. They contextualize Gallant's reading and invite you to consider the physical lives of her stories. How do we respond differently to this recording of a live reading as opposed to engaging with a printed work? What do you hear in Gallant's reading voice and her comments as she reads? This is part one of a two-part series based on this recording of Mavis Gallant. In June, part two of the series will guide us in a deeper exploration of the characters in the short story, the author, and recorded questions from the event we will hear today. We hope you enjoy this audio edition. Here are Kate, Candace, and Michelle with episode six of the Spoken Web podcast, Mavis Gallant reads Greep and Posh at SFU. Like all uh, people who, uh, who, who read or, or perform, I'm a fetishist. The watch has to be there and not there. And you see, that's why I'm doing all this fiddling. Can you all hear me? On February 14, 1984, acclaimed short story writer Mavis Gallant visited Simon Fraser University to do a reading of her short story, Creep and Poche, which was printed in The New Yorker in 1982. My name is Kate Moffat. I'm Candace Sharon. And I'm Michelle Levy. And as three members of the Simon Fraser University Spoken Web team, we're inviting you to come back in time with us 37 years to February 14, 1984, to attend Gallant's reading of her short story. Grip and Poche was published in The New Yorker in November of 1982. The print publication spans nine pages and includes what one expects from The New Yorker, cartoons on every page, a poem partway through, and the beginning of the next section of the magazine on the last page, which reads social notes from all over and includes an announcement for a Susquehanna County Sunshine Club meeting of which Municipal Police Chief Charles Martel and his police dog will be the guests. Gallant's reading, of course, includes none of this. And in fact, she did not read from a New Yorker copy of Group and Poche. She mentions partway through the event that she's oh, reading office. from proofs. I, I have an editorial query here. Is he imagining this? Yes. <laughs> The recording provides us with an opportunity not only to hear the author read her own work, but to hear a version of the story unavailable to readers, complete with her inflections and added commentary. 
Born in Montreal in 1922, Gallant is one of Canada's most noteworthy writers, known for short stories, novels, plays, and essays. During the 1940s, she worked as a reporter for the Montreal Standard, where she began publishing some of her early stories, before moving to Paris in 1950 to pursue writing full-time, and where she remained until her death in 2014. The year after she moved to Paris saw the beginning of her lifelong relationship with The New Yorker. Between the publication of Madeline's Birthday in 1951 and Scarves, Beads, Sandals in 1995, she published over 116 stories in the magazine. Grippe and Poche embodies the complex linguistic, political, and national cultural spaces Gallant occupied. Although her family was Anglophone, she was educated at a convent where only French was taught. Gallant explained that she learned to write primarily through her reading of English books, and by the age of eight, she writes, English was irremovably entrenched as the language of imagination. Born in Canada, but living in and writing about post-war France, in English, for an American magazine, Grip and Poche speaks to the multiple cultures and histories her writing navigates. At the time of this SFU reading, Gallant was an established and critically successful writer. Grip and Poche was her 95th story to appear in The New Yorker. Published on November 29, 1982, the story is the third in a four-part series with recurring characters. Previously, Henri Grip had appeared in two stories, A Painful Affair, March 16, 1981, and A Flying Start, September 13, 1982. Stories that recount Grip's literary rivalry with the English author, Victor Prism, and detail their early encounters with their American patroness. In 1985, these three stories were reprinted in Overhead in a Balloon, a collection that brings together 12 stories set in Paris. Nearly a decade after Grip and Poche, she returned to Grip for her final installment in the series with In Plain Sight, a story that takes us forward to an aging Grip recounting his refusal to accept the advances of his long-suffering neighbor, Madame Parfait, and his troubled past in Nazi-occupied central France. Importantly, Gallant collected the four stories together under the titular character's name in 1996. The audio cassette containing this recording is housed in the Simon Fraser University Archives and Records Management Department, where it is accompanied by a poster advertising the event, which was hosted by the now-defunct Canadian Studies Program in Images Theatre, a lecture hall on the Burnaby campus. Michelle unearthed this recording because of her interest in Gallant. However, once listening, we were struck by the story itself, with its sharp jabs at French bureaucracy, which were emphasized by the clarity and dramatic range of Gallant's voice on a tape recording from the 1980s. In addition to our work on Spoken Web, Kate, Michelle, and I all research 18th and 19th century book history, and in our conversations about how to approach this episode of the Spoken Web podcast, we were struck by the impact of material circumstances on the recording, both in the clues it provides as to what those circumstances were and the way it imposes them on us. Our framework for working with print also impacted our interpretation of this reading. Throughout, Gallant interrupts herself to explain French words or phrases, or to provide additional contextual information. Independently, all three of us began referring to these asides as akin to footnotes, even though for a listener they are not marginal commentary that can easily be ignored or skimmed, but rather fully integrated into the reading. As you listen to this recording, we invite you to think about the places where print and audio performance intersect, as well as where they diverge. What are the gains and losses of hearing the author read this story, rather than reading it yourself in print. 
What evidence exists within the recording about the event itself? How big does the room sound and how full is it? How many people seem to be present? How does Gallant respond to their presence, reshaping her proofs along the way? Our interpretation of the recording was also impacted by the material form of the cassette, which only allows for 45 minutes per side. This means a break occurs roughly 35 minutes into the reading that attendees of the event would not have experienced. We'll check back in with you at this break to talk more about its significance. For now, we'll leave you with Gallant, Grip, and Posh in 1984. This is a story called Grip and Posh. Uh, Henri Grip is an imaginary French Parisian writer uh, who has occupied four or five stories that, that I have published with his friend, uh, the British writer Victor Prism. They're entirely imaginary. They're not based in anyone in particular. It's just a, a very gentle send-up. Uh, the posh in question is the income tax man in Paris. At an early hour for the French man of letters, if you can't hear, just say something. I'll do the best I can. At an early hour for the French man of letters, Henri Grippe, it was a quarter to nine on an April morning, he sat in a windowless brown painted cubicle facing a slight mop-headed young man with horn-rimmed glasses and dimples. The man wore a dark tie with a narrow knot and buttoned-up blazer. His signature was O. Posh. His title, on the grubby, pulpy summons Grips had read sweating, was Controller. He must be freshly out of his civil service training school, Grips guessed. Even his aspect of a priest hearing a confession a few yards from the guillotine seemed newly acquired. Before him, lay open a dun-colored folder with not much in it, a letter from Grips full of delaying tactics, and copies of his correspondence with a bank in California. It was not true that American banks protected a depositor's secrets. Anyway, this one hadn't. Another reason Grips thought, oh, posh, must be recent, was the way he kept blushing. He was not nearly as pale and as case-hardened as Grips. At this time, President de Gaulle had been in power five years, two of which Grip had spent in blithe writer-in-residenceship in California. Returning to Paris, he had left a bank account behind. It was forbidden under the Fifth Republic for a French citizen to have a foreign account. The government might not have cared so much about drachmas or zlotties, but dollars were supposed to be scraped in converted to francs at bottom rate and, of course, counted as personal income. Grips's unwise and furtive moves with trifling sums, his somewhat paranoid disagreements with California over exchange, had finally caught the eye of the Bank of France as a glistening minnow might attract a dozing whale. The whale swallowed Grips, found him too small to matter, and spat him out straight into the path of a water ox called public treasury direct taxation personal income. That was Posh. What Posh had to discuss, a translation of Grips's novel, the one about the French teacher at the American University and his doomed love affair with his student, Karen Sue, seemed to embarrass him. 
Observing Posh with some curiosity, Grip saw unreeling scenes from the younger man's inhibited boyhood. He sensed, then discerned, the Catholic boarding school in bleakest Brittany, the unheated 40-bed dormitory, and nightly torment of unchaste dreams with astonishing partners, a daytime terror of real hell with real fire. Human waywardness is hardly new, said Grip, feeling more and more secure now that he had tested Posh and found him provincial. It no longer shocks anyone. It was not the moral content of the book he wished to talk over, said Posh, flaming. In any case, he was not qualified to do so. He had flubbed philosophy and never taken modern French thought. He must be new, Grips decided he was babbling. Frankly, even though he had the figures in front of him, Posh found it hard to believe the American translation had earned its author so little. There must be another considerable sum placed in some other bank. Perhaps Monsieur Grippe would try and remember. The figures were true. The translation had done poorly. Failure played to Grips' advantage, reducing the hint of deliberate tax evasion to a simple oversight. Still, it hurt to have things put so plainly. He felt bound to tell Posh that American readers were no longer interested in the teacher-student imbroglio, though there had been some slight curiosity as to what a foreigner might wring out of the old sponge. Posh gazed at Greep. His eyes seemed to Greep as helpless and eager as those of a gun dog waiting for a command. Encouraged, Greep said more. In writing his novel, he had overlooked the essential development. The erring professor was supposed to come home at the end. He could be half-dead, limping, on crutches, toothless, jobless, broke, impotent. It didn't matter. He had to be judged and shriven. As further mortification, his wife, during his foolish affair, would have gone on to be a world-class cellist under her maiden name. Wife had not entered Grips's cast of characters, probably because, like Posh, he didn't have one. He had noticed Posh did not wear a wedding ring. Grips had just left his professor driving off to an airport in blessed weather, whistling a jaunty air. Posh shook his head. Obviously, it was not the language he was after. He began to write in a clean page of the file, taking no more notice of Grips. What a mistake it had been, Grips reflected, still feeling pain beneath the scar, to have repeated the male teacher-female student pattern in the novel. He should have turned it around, identified himself with a brilliant and cynical woman teacher. Unfortunately, unlike Flaubert, his academic stalking horse, he could not put himself in a woman's place, probably because he thought it an absolutely terrible place to be. The novel had not done well in France, either. Posh still had to get around to that. The critics had found Karen Sue's sociological context obscure. She seemed at a remove from events of her time, unaware of improved literacy figures in North Korea, never once mentioned, or that since the advent of goalism, it cost 25 centimes to mail a letter. The pill, that's the pill, was still unheard of in much of Europe. Readers could not understand what it was Karen Sue kept forgetting to take. 
or why Greeps had devoted a contemplative, no-action chapter to the abstract essence of risk. <laughs> the professor had not given Karen Sue the cultural and political enlightenment one would expect from the graduate of a preeminent Paris school. It was a banal story, really, about a pair of complacently bourgeois lovers. The real victim was Grip, seduced and abandoned by the American middle class. It was Grip's first outstanding failure, and for that reason, the only one of his works he ever reread. He could still hear Karen Sue, the true, the original, making of every avowal a poignant question. I'm Karen Sue. I know you're busy. It's just that I don't understand what you said about Flaubert and his own niece. He recalled her with tolerance, the same tolerance that had weakened the book. Greep was wise enough to realize that the California bank affair had been an act of folly, a con man's aberration. He had thought he would get away with it, knowing all the while he couldn't. There existed a deeper treasure for Posh to uncover, well below public treasury sites. Computers had not yet come into government use. Even typewriters were rare. Posh had summoned Greep in a cramped, almost secretive hand. It took time to strike an error, still longer to write a letter about it. In his youth, Greep had received from an American patroness of the arts three rent-bearing apartments in Paris which he still owned. The patroness had been the last of a generous species, grips one of the last young men to benefit from her kind. He collected the rents by devious and untraceable means, stowing the cash obtained in safe deposit. His visible way of life was stoic and plain. Not even the most vigilant controller could fault his underfurnished apartment in Montparnasse, shared with some cats he had already tried to claim as dependents. <laughs> he showed none of the signs of prosperity public treasury seemed to like, such as membership in a golf club. Uh, this is not a joke on French income tax form. You're asked if you belong to a golf club. <laughs> it puts you in another bracket. After a minute of speculative anguish in the airless cubicle, Greeps saw that Posh had no inkling whatever about the flats. He was chasing something different, the inexistent royalties from the Karen Sue novel. By a sort of divine even-handedness, Greep was going to have to pay for imaginary earnings. He put the safe deposit out of his mind so that it would not show on his face and said... What will be left for me when you've finished adding and subtracting? To his surprise, Posh replied in a bold tone, pitched for reciting quotations. What is left? What is left? Only what remains at low tide when small islands are revealed emerging. He stopped quoting and flushed. Obviously, he had committed the worst sort of blunder, had let his own personality show, had crossed over to his opponent's ground. It sounds familiar, said Greep, enticing him further, although to tell you the truth, I don't remember writing it. It is a translation, said Posh, the Anglo-Saxon British author, Victor Prism. He pronounced it Prism. You've read Prism, said Greep, pronouncing correctly the name of an old acquaintance. I had to. Prism was on the preparatory program, Anglo-Saxon commercial English. 
They stuffed you with foreign writers, said Greek, with so many of us having to go to foreign lands for a living. That was perilous. He had just challenged Posh's training, the very foundation of his right to sit there reading Grips's private mail. But he had suddenly recalled his dismay when as a young man he had looked at a shelf in his room and realized he had to compete with the dead. Proust, Flaubert, Balzac, Stendhal, and on into the dark. The rivalry was infinite, a milky way of dead stars still daring to shine. He had invented a law, a hand on publication that would eliminate the dead, leaving the skies clear for the living. All the living, Grip still couldn't decide. Foreign writers would be deported to a remote solar system where they could circle one another. For PRISM, there was no system sufficiently remote. Not long ago, interviewed in The Listener, PRISM had dragged in grips, saying that he used to cross the channel to consult a seer in Half Moon Street, hurrying home to set down the prose revealed from a spirit universe. Sometimes I actually envied him, PRISM was quoted as saying. He sounded as though Grip were dead. I used to wish ghost voices would speak to me, too suggesting ribbons of pure prism running like ticker tape round the equator of a crystal ball. Unfortunately, I had to depend on my own creative intelligence, modest though I'm sure it was. Push did not know about this recent libel in Anglo-Saxon commercial English. He had been trying to be nice. Greek made a try of his own. I only meant you could have been reading me. The trouble was that he meant it ferociously. Posh must have heard the repressed shout. He shut the file and said, this is too complex for my level. I shall have to send it up to the inspector. Greek made a vow that he would never let natural peak get the better of him again. What will be left for me, Greek asked the inspector, when you have finished adding and subtracting. Madame de Pell did not bother to look up. She said, somebody should have taken this file in hand a long time ago. Let us start at the beginning. How long were you out of the country? When Posh said, send up, he'd meant it literally. Greep looked out on a church where Delacroix had worked in the slow summer rain. At the far end of the square, a few dark shops displayed joyfully trashy religious goods, like the cross set with tiny seashells Madame de Pell wore round her neck. Greep had been raised in an anti-clerical household in a small town where opposing factions were grouped behind the schoolmaster, his father, and the parish priest. Women, lapsed agnostics, sometimes crossed enemy lines and started going to church. One glimpsed them in gray, creeping along a gray-walled street. You were free to lodge a protest against the fine, said Madame de Pell, but if you lose the contestation, your fine will be tripled, that is the law. Greep decided that he would transform Madame de Pell into the manager of a brothel catering to the Foreign Legion, slovenly in her habits and addicted to chloroform. But he found the idea unpromising. In due course, he paid a monstrous penalty, which he did not contest, for fear of drawing attention to the three apartments. It was still believed he had stashed away millions from the Karen Sue book, probably in Switzerland. A summons addressed by O. Posh's shrunken hand the following spring showed Greep he had been tossed back downstairs. After that, he forgot about Madame de Pell, except now and then.
It was at about this time that a series of novels offered themselves to greet shadowy outlines behind a frosted glass pane. He knew he must not let them crowd in altogether or keep them waiting too long. His foot against the door, he admitted, one by one, a number of shadows that turned into young men, each bringing his own name and address, his native region of France portrayed on colored postcards, and an index of information about his tastes in clothes, love, food, and philosophers, his bent of character, his tics of speech, his attitudes to God and money, his political bias, and the intimation of a crisis about to explode underfoot. Antoine provided a Jesuit confessor, a homosexual affinity, and loss of faith. Spiritual shilly-shallying runs long. Antoine's covered more than 600 pages, making it the thickest work in the grip canon. Then came Thomas, with his Spartan mother and a Provisal fruit farm rejected in favor of a civil service career. Bertrand followed, adrift in frivolous Paris, tempted by neo-fascism in the form of a woman wearing a bed jacket trimmed with marabou. René cycled round France, reading Chateaubriand when he stopped to rest. One morning he set fire to the barn he'd been sleeping in, leaving his books to burn. This was the shortest of the novels and the most popular with the young. One critic scolded Greed for using crude symbolism. Another begged him to stop hiding behind Antoine and René and to take up the metaphysical risk of revealing Henri. But Grip had tried that once with Karen Sue, then with a roman acclaim mercifully destroyed in the confusion of May 1968. He took these contretemps for a sign that he was to leave the subjective Grip alone. The fact that each novel appeared, even to Grip, to be a slice of French writing about life, as it had been carved up and served a generation before, made it seem quietly insurrectional. Nobody was doing this now. No one but Grip. Grip, for a time uneasy, decided to go on letting the shadows in. The announcement of a new publication would bring a summons from Posh. When Posh leaned over the file now, Grip saw amid the mop of curls a coin-sized tonsure. His diffident, steely questions tried to elicit from Grip how many novels were likely to be sold and where Grip had already put the money. Grip would give him a copy of the book inscribed. Posh would turn back the cover, glance at the signature to make certain Grip had not written something compromising and friendly. He kept the novels in a metal locker fastened together with government-issue webbing tape and a military-looking buckle. It troubled Greep to think of his work all in a bundle in the dark. He thought of old-fashioned milestones, half-hidden by weeds. The volumes marked time for Posh, too. He was still a controller. Perhaps he had to wait for the woman upstairs to retire so he could take over her title. The cubicle needed paint. There was a hole in the brown linoleum just inside the door. Posh now wore a wedding ring. Grip wondered if he should congratulate him, but decided to let Posh mention the matter first. Grip could swear that in his string of novels, nothing had been chipped out of his own past. Antoine, Thomas, Bertrand, René, and by now Clément, Didier, Laurent, Huguenive had arrived as strangers, almost like historical figures. At the same time, it seemed to Grip 
that their wavering, ruffled reflection should deliver something he might recognize. What did he see bending over the pond of his achievement? He saw a character, close-mouthed, cautious, unimaginative, ill at ease, obsessed with particulars. Worse, he was closed against progress, afraid of reform, shut into a literary, reactionary France. How could this be? Greep had always and sincerely voted left. He had proved he could be reckless, open-minded, indulgent. He was like a father gazing round the breakfast table, suddenly realizing none of the children are his. His children, if he could call them that, did not even look like him. From Antoine to Eve, his reflected character was small and slight with a mop of curly hair, horn-rimmed glasses and dimples. Greek believed in the importance of errors. No political system, no love affair, no native inclination, no life itself would be tolerable without a wide mesh for mistakes to slip through. It pleased him that public treasury had never caught up with the three apartments, not just for the sake of the cash piling up in safe deposit, but for the black hole of error revealed. He and Push had been together for some years, another blunder. Usually controller and taxpayer were torn apart after a meeting or two so that the revenue service would not start taking into consideration the client's aged indigent aunt, his bill for dental surgery, his alimony payments, his perennial mortgage. But possibly no one except Posh could be bothered with Grippe, always making some time-wasting claim for minute professional expenses, backed by a messy-looking certified receipt. Sometimes Greep dared believe Posh admired him, that he hung on to the dossier out of devotion to his books. This conceit was intensified when Posh began calling him Maître. Once, Greep won some City of Paris award and was shown shaking hands with the mayor and simultaneously receiving a long, checked-filled envelope. Promptly summoned by Posh, expecting a discreet compliment, Greep found him interested only in the caption under the photo which made much of the size of the check. Greep later thought of sending a sneering letter, thank you for your warm congratulations, but he decided in time it was wiser not to fool with Posh. Posh had recently given him a 33% personal exemption, 3% more than the outer limit for Greeps's category of unsalaried earners. According to Posh, a group that included, as well as authors, door-to-door -door salesmen and prostitutes. The dun-colored Gaullist-era jacket on Greeps's file had worn out long ago and been replaced in 1969 by a cover in cool banker's green, that is, with the advent of uh, Pompidou, who had been uh, connected with the bank. Green presently made way for a shiny black-and-white marbled effect, reflecting the mood of opulence of the early 70s. Called in for his annual springtime confession, Grips remarked about the folder, culture seems to have taken a decisive turn. Posh did not ask what culture. He continued bravely, food for the cats, maître, we can't. They depend on me, said Grippe. 
but they had already settled the cats as dependents question once and for all. Posh drooped over Greeps' smudged and unreadable figures. Greeps tried to count the number of times he'd examined the top of Posh's head. He still knew nothing about him except for the wedding ring. Somewhere along the way, Posh had tied himself to a need for retirement pay and rich exemptions of his own. In the language of his generation, Posh was a fully structured individual. His vocabulary was sparse and to the point, centered on a single topic. His state training school, the machine that ground out Pell's and Posh's all sounding alike, was in Clermont-Ferrand. Greeks was born in the same region. That might have given something else them excuse me, something else to talk about, except that Grip had never been back. Structured Posh probably attended class reunions, was godfather to classmates' children, jotted their birthdays in a leather-covered notebook he never mislaid. Unstructured Grip could not even remember his own age. Posh turned over a sheet of paper, read something Grip could not see, and said automatically, we can't. Nothing as ever as it was, said Grip, still going on about the marbled effect folder. It was a remark that usually shut people up, leaving them nowhere to go but a change of subject. Besides, it was true. Nothing can be as it was. Posh and Grip had just lost a terrifying number of brain cells. They were an instant closer to death. Death was of no interest to Posh. If he ever thought he might cease to exist, he would stop concentrating on other people's business and get down to reading Grip while there was still time. Grip wanted to ask, do you ever imagine your own funeral? But it might have been taken as a threatening, gangsterish hint from taxpayer to controller. Worse, far worse than an attempted bribe. Folders of a pretty mottled peach shade appeared. That accompanies Giscard d'Estaing's reign. Posh's cubicle was painted soft beige, the torn linoleum repaired. Posh sat in a comfortable armchair, resembling the wide leather seats in smart furniture stores at the upper end of Boulevard Saint-Germain. Grippe had a new straight metallic chair that shot him bolt upright and hurt his spine. It was the heyday of the Giscardian period, when it seemed more important to keep the buttons polished than to watch where the regiment was heading. Grip and Posh had not advanced one inch toward each other. Except for the paint and the chairs and maître, it could have been 1963. No matter how many works were added to the bundle in the locker, no matter how often Grip had his picture taken, no matter how many Grip paperbacks blossomed on airport bookstalls, Grip to Posh remained a button. The mottled peach jacket began to darken and fray. Posh said to Grip, I asked you to come here, Maître, because we have overlooked something concerning your income. Grip's heart gave a lurch. The other day I came across an old ruling about royalties. How much of your income do you kick back? Excuse me? To publishers, to bookstores, said Posh. How much? Kick back? What percentage, said Posh? Publishers, printers. You mean, said Grip after a time, how much do I pay editors to edit, publishers to publish, printers to print, and booksellers to sell? 
He supposed that to push such a scheme might sound plausible. It would fit his long view over Grips's untidy life. Grips knew most of the literary gossip that went round about himself. The circle was so small it had to come back. In most stories, there was a virus of possibility, but he had never heard anything as absurd as this or as base. Posh opened the file, concealing the moldering cover, apparently waiting for Grips to mention a figure. The nausea, Grip felt, he put down to his having come here without breakfast. One does not insult a controller. He had shouted silently at Posh years before and had been sent upstairs to do penance with Madame de Pelle. It is not good to kick over a chair and stalk out. I have never been so insulted might have no meaning from Grip, keel-hauled month after month in some lumpy review. As his works increased from bundle to heap, so they drew intellectual abuse. He welcomed partisan ill-treatment as warming to him as popular praise. Don't forget me, Greek silently prayed, standing at the periodicals table of La Une, the left-bank bookstore, looking for his own name in those quarterlies no one ever takes home. Don't praise me. Praise is weak stuff. Praise me after I'm dead. But even the most sour and despairing and close-printed essays were starting to mutter a claim. The shoreline of the 80s, barely in sight, was ready to welcome Grip, who had re-established the male as hero, whose left-wing heartbeat could be heard loyally thumping behind the armor of his right-wing traditional prose. His re-established hero had curly hair, soft eyes, horn-rimmed glasses, dimples, and a fully structured life. He was pleasing to both sexes and to every type of reader, except for a few thick-ribbed louts. Grip looked back at Posh, who did not know how closely they were bound. What if he were to say, this is a preposterous insinuation, a blot on a noble profession, and on my reputation in particular, only to have Posh answer, too bad, Met, I was trying to help. He said, as one good-natured fellow to another, well, what if I own up to this crime? It's no crime, said Posh, I simply add the amount to your professional expenses. To my rebate, said Grip. to my exemption? Depends how much. A third of my income, said Grip insanely. Half. Oh, reasonable figure might be 12.5%. All this for Grip. Posh wanted nothing. Grip considered with awe the only uncorruptible element in a porous society. No secret message had passed between them. He could not even invite Posh to lunch. He wondered if this arrangement had ever actually existed, if there could possibly be a good dodge that he, Grip, had never even heard of. He thought of contemporary authors for whose success there was no other explanation. It had to be celestial playfulness or 12.5%. The structure, as Grip was already calling it, might also just be Posh's innocent, indecent idea about writers. Posh was reading the file again, though he must have known everything in it by heart. He was as absorbed, as contented, and somehow as pure as a child with a box of paints. 
At any moment, he would raise his tender, bewildered eyes and murmur, four dozen typewriter ribbons and a third of the fiscal year, maître, we can't. Grieb tried to compose a face for Posh to encounter, a face above reproach. But writers, considered above reproach, always looked moody and haggard, about to scream. Be careful, he was telling himself. Don't let Posh think he's doing you a favor. These people set traps. Was Posh angling for something? Was this bait? Attempting to bribe a public servant, the ag accusation was called. Bribe wasn't the word. It was corruption, the law mentioned, an attempt to corrupt. All Greep had ever offered Posh were his own books formerly inscribed, as though Posh were an anonymous reader, standing in line in a bookstore, where Greep, wedged behind a shaky table, sat signing away. Your name? Whose name? How do you spell your name? Oh, the book isn't for me. It's for a friend of mine. His look, his look changed to one of severity and impatience until he remembered that Posh had never asked him to sign anything. He had never concealed his purpose, to pluck from Grips's plumage every bright feather he could find. Careful, Greep repeated, careful, remember what happened to Prism. Victor Prism, keeping pale under a parasol on the beach at Torre Molinos, had made the acquaintance of a fellow Englishman, Pleasant, not well-educated, but eager to learn. Blistered shoulders, shirt draped over his head, pages of the Sunday Express around his red thighs. Prism lent him something to read because his sunburn was keeping him awake. It was a creative essay on three emigre authors of the 1930s in a review so obscure and ill-paying that Prism had not bothered to include the fee on his income tax return. Prism had got it all wrong, of course, putting Thomas Mann to die in the charity ward of a Paris hospital, st sending Stefan Zweig to be photographed with movie stars in California, and having Bertolt Brecht, whose plain name Prism could not spell, win the Nobel Prize and savor a respected old age in a suburb of Zurich. As it turned out, none of Prism's readers knew the difference. Prism might have gone, got off with the whole thing if his new friend had not fallen sound asleep after the first lines. Waking, refreshed, he had said to himself, I must find out what they get paid for this stuff. A natural reflex, he was of the inland revenue. He'd found no trace, no record. For inland revenue purposes, death and exile did not exist. The subsequent fine was so heavy and Prism's disgrace so acute that he fled England to spend a few days with Grip and the cats in Montparnasse. He sat in a kitchen chair while Grip, nose and mouth protected by a checked scarf, sprayed terror to cockroaches. Prism, weeping in the fumes, Prism, excuse me, I'm pronouncing it in French, Prism, weeping in the fumes, wiping his eyes, said, I'm through with queen and country, something like that, and I'm taking out French citizenship tomorrow. You would have to marry a French woman and have five male children, said Grip, through the scarf. He was feeling the patriotic hatred of a driver on a crowded road seeing foreign license plates in the way. Oh, well then, said Prism, as if to say, I won't bother. Oh, well then, said Grip, softly, not quite to Posh. Posh added one last thing to the file and closed it, as if something definite had taken place. He clasped his hands and placed them on the dossier. 
It seemed shut for all time now, like a grave. He said, Maitre, one never stays long in the same fiscal theater. I have been in this one for an unusual length of time. We may not meet again. I want you to know I have enjoyed our conversations. Uh, so have I, said Greep with caution. Much of your autobiographical creation could apply to other lives of our time. It's 2021 again, and at this point, the cassette holding Gallant's reading needs to be flipped. The recording on side A has neatly stopped after Poche's comment, and the tape now has 12 blank seconds before it ends. We're none of us listening to this reading by playing a physical cassette, but at this pause, where I had to close the digital file with the recording of side A and open the digital file for the recording of side B, we're made aware of the physical limitations of the cassette holding the recording that resides in the SFU archives. If you were listening to a physical copy of this cassette on an old tape player, you would be pressing the eject button to open the little plastic door, pulling the tape free, flipping it, and inserting it again before closing the door with its soft click. And here, time grows fuzzy. We're listening to Gallant reading in 1984, not reading her work from a page, and that brings with it an altered experience of grief and poche. We can hear Gallant's inflections, her commentary that doesn't appear in print, the audience's laughter, all the evidence of a live event. We don't see the New Yorker cartoons on every page, or Roberta Spears' poem, Diving for Atlantis, which appears halfway through, or the traditional New Yorker layout that looks much the same for short stories printed in the magazine today, which makes Gallant's print publication in 1982 less obviously indicative of its age than the cassette recording of her reading in 1984. Even the recording itself asks us to consider the circumstances of its creation more than 30 years ago. The 12-second pause following Poche's complete comment suggests interference by a critical editor or recorder of the reading, someone as aware as we are of the necessity to flip the tape from side A to side B. And aware, too, of how moving from the end of one complete sentence to the beginning of another is a very different experience than hearing only the first half of a sentence and having to fumble your way towards the second. The fact that this break does not occur mid-sentence made us suspect that the recording may have been transferred from reel to reel. Although our attempts to learn more about how this reading was recorded turned up little solid information, they did draw our attention to a piece of SFU trivia, that many of the events held at SFU during this period were recorded by the highly regarded Vancouver-based recording engineer, Curtis Fannell. While we have been unable to turn up definitive evidence about who recorded Gallant, our deep dive into SFU's AV history served as an important reminder of the often unseen human hands that shape archival materials. Conversely, the unanswerable questions this break raises reminds us of the fragmentary nature of the archive as theorized by Diana Taylor in The Archive and the Repertoire. No document, whether paper or sound, can fully capture a live, lived event or practice. It is with these considerations of time and form that we return to 1984, to Gallant's reading, where her voice is shaping the story, and where Poche has just told Grip that much of your autobiographical creation could apply to other lives of our time. So you have read them, said Grip with an eye on the locker. Oh, I read those I bought, said Poche. But they're the same books. No, one book belongs to me, the other was a gift. I would never open the gift I have no right to. His voice rose and he spoke more slowly. In one of them, when What's-His-Name struggles to prepare his civil service tests, 
and, and now he quotes something, uh, presumably from one of the books. The desire for individual glory seemed so inapposite suddenly in a nature given to renunciation. I suppose it is a remarkable observation, said Grieb. I, I was not referring to myself. He had no idea what that could be from, and he was certain he had never written it. Posh did not send for Grieb again. Grieb became a commonplace taxpayer, filling out his forms without help. The frosted glass door was reverting to dull white. There were fewer shadows for Grieb to let in. A new French fashion for having well-behaved Nazi officers shore up Western culture gave Grieb a chance to turn Posh into a tubercular poet trapped in Paris by poverty and the occupation. Grieb threw out the first draft, in which Posh joined a Christian-minded resistance network and performed a few simple miracles, unaware of his own powers. He had the instinctive feeling that a new generation would not know what he was talking about. Instead, he placed Posh, sniffling and wheezing, in a squalid hotel room, cough drops spilled on the table, a stained blanket pinned round his shoulders. Up the feeted staircase came a handsome German colonel, a Kurd Jürgen's type, smelling of shaving lotion, bent on saving liberal values, bringing posh buttered cognac and a thousand sheets of writing paper. After that, Grip no longer felt sure where to go. His earlier books, government tape and buckle binding them into an oeuvre, had accompanied Posh to his new fiscal theater. Perhaps, finding his career blocked by the woman upstairs, he had asked for early retirement. Posh must be in a gangster-ridden Mediterranean city, occupying a shoddy boom-period apartment he'd spent 20 years paying for. He was working at black market jobs, tax advisor to the local mayor, a small innocent cog in the regional mafia. After lunch, Posh would sit in one of those southern balconies that hold just a deck chair, rereading in chronological order all Grips' books. In the late afternoon, blinds drawn, Posh totted up mafia accounts by a chink of light. Meanwhile, Grips was here in Montparnasse, facing a flat white glass door. He continued to hand himself a 45.5% personal exemption, the astonishing 33 plus the unheard of 12.5. No one seemed to mind. No shabby envelope holding an order for execution came in the mail. Sometimes in Grips's mind, a flicker of common sense flamed like revealed truth. The exemption was an error. Public treasury was now tiptoeing toward computers. The computer brain was bound to wince at Greep and stop functioning until the Greep exemption was settled. Greep rehearsed, I was seriously misinformed. He had to go farther and farther abroad to find offal for the cats. One tripe dealer had been turned into a driving school. Another sold secondhand clothes. Returning on a winter evening after a long walk, Carrying a parcel of sheep's lung wrapped in a newspaper, he crossed Boulevard du Montparnasse just as the lights went on, the urban moonrise. The street was a dream street, faces flat white in the winter mist. It seemed to Greep that he had crossed over to the 1980s, had only just noticed the new decade. In a recess between two glassed-in sidewalk cafes, 
four plain-clothes cops were beating up a pair of pickpockets. Nobody had to explain the scene to Grip. He knew what it was about. One prisoner already wore handcuffs. Customers in the far side of the glass gave no more than a glance. When they got the handcuffs on the second man, the cops pushed the two into the entrance of Grips's apartment building to wait the police van. Grips shuffled into a cafe. He put his parcel of lights on the zinc top bar and started to read an article on the wrapping. Someone unknown to him, a new name, pursued an old grievance. Why don't they write about real life anymore? Because to depict life is to attract its ill fortune, Grip replied. He stood, sipping coffee, staring at nothing. Four gun-bearing young men in jeans and leather jackets were not final authority. Final authority was something written, the printed word, even when the word was mistaken. The simplest final authority in Grips's life had been, oh, posh. What must have happened was this. Posh, wishing to do honor to a category that included writers, prostitutes, and door-to-door salesmen, had read and misunderstood a note about royalties. It must have been in italics at the foot of the page. He had transformed his mistake into a regulation and had never looked at the page again. Greeps climbed three flights of dirty wooden stairs to Madame de Pell's office. I, I have an editorial query here. Is he imagining this? Yes. <laughs> These are proofs. He observed the small, the seashell crucifix and a brooch he had not noticed the first time, a silver fawn curled up as nature had never planned, a boneless fawn. Squinting, Madame de Pell peered at the old dun-colored Gaullist era file. She put her hand over a page as though Greep were trying to read upside down and said it has all got to be paid back. I was seriously misinformed, Greep intended to answer, willing to see posh disgraced, ruined, jailed. I followed instructions, I am innocent. But Posh had vanished, leaving Greep with a lunatic exemption, three black market income-bearing apartments he had recently unsuccessfully tried to sell, and a heavy reputation for male-oriented, left-feeling, right-thinking books. (laughs) This reputation Greep thought he could no longer sustain. A socialist government was, at last, in place. Hence his hurry about unloading the flats and his difficulty in finding takers. He wondered about the new file covers. Pink, too fragile. Look what happened with the mottled peach. Strong denim blue, the shades standing for Jovanetsa and workers' overalls. It was no time for a joke, not even a private one. No one could guess what would be wanted now in the way of literary entertainment. The fitfulness of voters is such that having got the government they wanted, they were now reading nothing but the right-wing press. Perhaps a steady right-wing heartbeat ought to set the cadence for a left-wing outlook with a complex, bravely conservative heroine contained within the slippery but unyielding walls of left-wing style. He would have to come to terms with the rightest way of considering female characters. There seemed to be two methods, neither of which suited Grips's temperament. Treat her disgustingly, then cry all over the page, 
or admire and respect her. She is the equal, at least, of a horse. The only woman his imagination offered, with some insistence, was no use to him. She moved quietly on a winter evening to St. Nicolas du Chardonnay, the rebel church at the lower end of Boulevard Saint-Germain, that is the conservative church, where services were still con conducted in Latin. She wore a hat ornamented with an ivory arrow and a plain gray coat, tubular in shape, and a narrow fur collar. Kid gloves were tucked under the handle of her sturdy leather purse. She had never heard of video games, push-button telephones, dishwashers, frozen filleted soul computer horoscopes. She entered the church and knelt down and brought out her rosary, oval, pearls strung on thin gold. Nobody saw rosaries anymore. They were not even in the windows of the traditional venue across the square from the tax bureau. Believers went in for different articles now, cherub candles, uh, quick prayers and plastic cards. Her iron meekness resisted change. She prayed constantly into the past. Greeks knew that one view of the past is just as misleading as speculation about the future. It was one of the few beliefs he would have gone to the stake for. She was praying to a mist, to mist-shrouded figures she persisted in seeing clear. He could see the woman, but he could not approach her. Perhaps he could get away with dealing with her from a distance. All that was really needed for a sturdy right-wing novel was its pessimistic rhythm. And then, and then, and then, and death. Grip had that rhythm. It was in his footsteps, coming up the stairs after the departure of the police van, turning the key in his triple-bolted front door. And then... And then, the cats padding and mewing, not giving Greeps time to take off his coat as they made for their empty dishes on the kitchen floor. Behind the gas stove, a beleaguered garrison of cockroaches got ready for the evening sortie. Grip would be waiting, his face half-veiled with a checked scarf. In St. Nicolas du Chardonnay, the woman shut her missile, got off, off her knees, scorning to brush her coat. She went out to the street, proud of the dust marks, letting the world know she still prayed the old way. She escaped him. He had no idea what she had on besides the hat and coat. Nobody else wore a hat with an ivory arrow or a tubular coat or a scarf that looked like a weasel biting its tail. He could not see what happened when she took the hat and coat off, what her hair was like, if she hung the coat in a hall closet that also contained umbrellas, a carpet sweeper, and a pile of old magazines, if she put the hat in a round box on a shelf, she moved off in a gray blur. There was a streaming window between them Grip could not wipe clean. Probably she entered a dark dining room, fake Henri IV buffet, that means something especially hideous, uh, bottles of pills next to the oil and vinegar cruets, lace tablecloth folded over the back of a chair, just oilcloth spread for the family meal. What could he do with such a woman? He could not tell who was waiting for her or what she would eat for supper. He could not even guess her name. She revealed nothing would never help. Grip expelled the cats, shut the kitchen window, and dealt with the advance guard from behind the stove. What he needed now was despair and excitement, a new cat-and-mouse chase. What good was a computer that never caught anyone out? After airing the kitchen and clearing it of its poison, Grip let the cats in. 
he swept up the bodies of his victims and sent them down the ancient cast-iron chute. He began to talk to himself, as he often did now. First, he said a few sensible things. Then he heard his voice with a new elderly quaver to it, virtuous and mean. After all, it doesn't take much to keep me happy. Now, that was untrue, and he had no reason to say it. Is that what I'm going to be like now, he wondered. Is this the new era Greek pinch-mouthed? It was exactly the sort of thing that woman in the dining room might say. The best thing that could happen to him would be shock, a siege of terror, a knock at the door, a registered letter with fearful news. It would sharpen his humor, strengthen his own private eccentric heart. It would keep him from making remarks in his solitude that were meaningless and false. He could perhaps write an anonymous letter saying that the famous author Henri Griep was guilty of tax evasion of the most repulsive kind. He was, moreover, a callous landlord who had never been known to replace a doorknob. Fortunately, he saw he was not yet that mad, nor did he really need to be scared and obsessed. He had got the woman from church to dining room, and he would keep her there, trapped, cornered, threatened, watched, until she yielded to grip and told her name, as in his several incarnations, good posh had always done. In the June episode of this podcast, we'll be returning to Mavis Gallant's reading of this story in an attempt to reconstruct this event from the surviving archival and textual materials, as well as the fallible recesses of human memory. This episode had us thinking about the many connections visible in the archival recording of the reading, between the story itself and Gallant's storytelling, between Gallant's voice and the clarity of the recording and the hands that shaped it during the recording, editing, and archival processes. In June, we'll be thinking about these connections in terms of what they can tell us about the event itself. We'd love to hear from our listeners about what caught your attention and what questions you have about Gallant's reading on February 14th, 1984 at Simon Fraser University. Spoken Web is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found at universities across Canada. Our producers this month are Spoken Web contributors Kate Moffat, Candace Sharon, and Michelle Levy, with additional audio courtesy of the Simon Fraser University Archives and Records Management Department. Our podcast project manager and supervising producer is Stacey Copeland. Assistant producer and outreach manager is Judy Burr. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit spokenweb.ca and subscribe to the Spoken Web podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. If you love us, let us know. Rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. Stay tuned to your podcast feed later this month for Shortcuts, a brand new take on Audio of the Month with Catherine McLeod. Mini stories about how literature sounds.